Good evening, everyone. Thank you so much for coming out tonight. It's lovely to see you all, and I want to thank our virtual audience for joining us this evening. So we have a really interesting pairing tonight. We have Mary Kubica over there in the red, a best-selling author who obviously has lots of fans here. And on her way to becoming Mary is Jennifer Herrera, who is here. This is her debut novel. And and publication day, which is even more exciting. So it's like a double, no wait, this, yeah, today's Tuesday, sorry, I keep up. Right, today is Tuesday, so it is technically publication day. Um, I won't bore you with why Tuesdays are publication days. It's a long and ridiculous story that I'm working seriously to change. But anyway, I mean, it is a long and ridiculous story, but you have to be as old as I am and have done it as long as I have to know why Tuesdays are publication day. Anyway, um, I think it's wonderful that we are able to take um, an author with a large track record and an author who's not done this before. Are you a little unnerved by this? I'm a little unnerved by this. <laughs> and Jennifer is a new mom. She has a baby 12 weeks old, right? And it's an adorable baby. And when you get your book signed, maybe she'll show you the baby because he is, for a newborn, he's fabulous. He's very cute. It's like a gift with purchase. <laughs> right. So anyway, lots of things to celebrate. Um, anyway, um, I thought that it would be fun for you all if they talk to each other and you don't have to listen to me. But for those of you who don't know who I am, I'm Barbara Peters and I own the Poison Pen, which is in its 33rd year this year. Yay. And one of the things we are the proudest of is that we have, a, I'm, I think on really almost an unparalleled record of introducing new authors to our readers. And I always encourage you to turn out for them. It's, it's a thoughtful, it's a gesture of support, it's a great way to hear new voices and you know learn new things. And you never know when one of them is going to turn in to marry. <laughs> and you will never otherwise be able to say, but I was there when, because you get bragging rights. If you if you do that. So anyway, thank you, Jennifer, for letting us have that opportunity and Mary for um, for making it possible, too. So I'm going to ask both of you, why is it that you write the kind of books you write and you can go from there? Mary? Yeah. Um, thank you for having. Can everybody hear me? Yeah. Thank you for having us here tonight. I'm so honored to be here, and I'm so excited to be chatting here with Jennifer tonight. I loved The Hunter. I, I highly, highly recommend it. Um, and thanks to all of you for coming. But um, So why do I write this type of book? You know, I really found this genre kind of by accident. I've loved to write pretty much my whole life, um, but early on, you know, I was writing... I don't know. I was just writing, I guess, like in a variety of genres, but it was pretty general. It was just, you know, um, whatever whatever I was dealing with in my own life, I would say that I was writing about and kind of living vicariously through my characters. But it was more just general fiction, general women's fiction. Nothing had the dark, twisty suspense elements. And um, but I, I also would like start writing a manuscript and I lose interest part way in. It just didn't excite me. You know, I, something was always missing and I couldn't figure out what. And so I, you know, set one project aside and I'd get some great idea and I would dive into something else. And that that same process just kept repeating itself. I'd get part way in and lose interest and set it aside. 
And then when I was working on my first published book, The Good Girl, it was then that I added some mystery elements in, and it was totally by accident. Like, I set out to write this love story. I had no idea that it was going to be so dark and twisty, and <laughs> um, I, I just started writing, you know, and I, I started to work in, you know, some of the mystery, and I don't know, I just, I fell in love with writing like that. I was just totally fascinated by the genre. And, you know, everything that comes with it, the unreliable narrators and having a big twist and leaving that breadcrumb trail for the readers. So as soon as I, you know, found it, like I just I just knew that I had found my thing. I love that answer. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think that, you know, my story is very similar. I um, I've always loved crime fiction. I've always loved TV shows, anything where I felt like I was solving a puzzle and like chasing the author to see if I like if they could fool me. And if they did fool me, then like I wanted a rematch. So I wanted to read their next book. And that's sort of how it got started. Just wanting to create these really great puzzles. Yeah. And then um, and then it became a game for myself. Can I create a puzzle so hard that I can't solve it as the author, <laughs> which was challenging. Um, but at the end of the day, I think that the reason I gravitate toward this genre, and a lot of people do, is because it, it gives you this sort of familiar setup, right? You have some sort of killer, you have a plucky detective, and you have a solution. And so it gives you this sense of certainty in a world that's very chaotic. And at the end of the day, like, it should, it should make you think, it should, you should learn things about the world, but it should give you a sense of, um, you know, feeling like all is right with the world because you've you've come to a conclusion about at least this one thing. So if we agree that storytelling is a, one of the primary human characteristics, you know, we, we define ourselves by stories, we learn from stories, we enjoy stories and so forth. Um, do you think that reading your kind of book has an effect on the way people want to craft their own stories or maybe edit their own stories? Ah, that's, I don't know, that's a really good question. I feel like, I feel like people are drawn to this genre because like on their very worst day, they can see themselves, you know, in the characters in our books, you know, not the everyday, thank goodness, but you know, the things that happen in our books are not that implausible. They, they could very much happen to any one of us. Um, I don't know, you know, that I'm not sure how it crafts our future, but I think that there's definitely things to be like learned from the book and, and it makes you maybe reflect on yourself. And a lot of, a lot of this Books, the books in this genre really make your, you ask yourself, like, what would I do in a similar situation? Would I do the same thing that these these characters were doing? And sometimes you don't know, because a lot of times in books like ours, like these characters, their backs are really to a wall. And thank goodness, many of us have never been in situations like those. But I think that it really makes you ask yourself those questions. Yeah, I would absolutely agree. And I think something that um, someone said to me at one point was that the villain is always a version of the main character. Um, and that is something that I think is stuck with me. This idea of the, as though, you know, in a detective, say in my case, fighting against a killer or trying to uncover a killer, she's really dealing with her own demons. Like this is the worst version of herself. And by conquering it, she's allowing her, her better self to, to shine through. And so my hope is that somebody, I mean, I think I, I approach crime fiction this way with this sense that I want to be reminded why it's not a good idea to sort of, you know, become the worst version of myself. So this particular genre that we're talking about is often called domestic suspense or psychological suspense. Crime fiction is an enormously broad umbrella. And sometimes, you know, you have 
world domination at stakes. You have, you know, spies, the falls of empires. You have, you know, the CIA running rotten, um, whatever it is. But in this genre, mostly it's about family and about relationships. It um, can be husband and wife, parent and child, siblings, you know, that sort of thing. Um, and so maybe, do you think that makes it feel more real to readers that it's part of their own personal world? Because not too many of those are really James Bond in skirts. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, you're actually wearing one. <laughs> Yeah, I think that they're they're totally relatable. You know, I I think that again, kind of to piggyback off my last answer, but I feel like you know many of our characters. You know, Jennifer in her book, she deals with a lot of family issues, a lot of relationship issues. There's a husband and wife who are going through some some difficulties, and um, you know, there's a child in there, and you know, just extended family, and so there's there's a lot of family really at play there, and so I just I think that it makes it all that much it just brings it really close to home for us and i think that connecting with characters for a reader is so super important like that's always one of my goals when i set out to write a book is like i really want you as a reader to connect with the characters and they're going to make some really stupid decisions and you know you're going to scream at them for the choices they're making but um like i want you to on some sort of emotional level get them and and so i think that that is what makes it so much more domestic because you can just you can put yourself in that character's shoes and have that emotional journey with them. And I think that it makes you really want to see, you know, whether or not you figure out that big twist, I think you still want to see it through to the end and see what happens to the character at the ends. Yeah, I, I mean, I would absolutely agree. I think that um, that you have to connect to the characters or you don't care about one, like finding out the, you know, the answer to this puzzle, right? There are lots of puzzles that I genuinely don't care about. Crossword puzzles, I genuinely don't care about. It doesn't like, there's no emotional resonance for me. So it's like, how do you make this story not a crossword puzzle, right? How do you make it not just a logic puzzle? And I think that has to do with emotional resonance. So then the question becomes, well, how do you create emotional resonance? And that's only through character, I think, through seeing yourself or the people you love in these characters. And a lot of times, you know, these people are making really bad decisions. And I think there's a reason for that. It's because we try not to make bad decisions in our own lives. And so this is sort of a place to explore what it would have been like had we made these bad decisions. Um, and, and convincing ourselves that even if we'd made these terrible decisions, there's a way that we can come out of it. So Jennifer, why don't you give us a, you know, a pitch, so to speak, or at least describe up to the point where it becomes spoilers. What happens? <laughs> no spoilers, right? Going to be deadly. Um, what happens in The Hunters so that we all know what you're talking about? Yes, absolutely. And I've con I hope I convince you all to pick up a copy with my excellent pitch. Uh, so The Hunter is a story of an NYPD detective who makes a really big mistake. She points her sidearm at her partner and lets a suspect get away. Now, when she does this, she destroys her whole life. She loses her job with the NYPD. Her husband, who is also with the NYPD, leaves her. And she's completely at wit's end for why she even did this. She thinks back to it, and she's like, what was I thinking? And she can't answer that question. And then she gets a call from her brother, who is a police officer in small town, Ohio. And he says, there are these three suspicious deaths. Can you come and see if you can figure out what happened? 
Now, Lee, the the narrator, gets it in her head that if she does this, if she solves this really big case, her husband will come back to her. She'll get her job back with the NYPD. And this crumbling life that she's had will just suddenly reconstitute itself. The only problem is that when she goes home, she has to deal with all of this emotional baggage. But as it turns out, dealing with this emotional baggage is going to be key to solving this case. And it's going to be key to figuring out why she made that really big mistake. So the thing that I really love about this book is that it you, you have this case of an unreliable narrator, but she's not unreliable because she has a drug addiction or because she has an alcohol addiction or because she has a mental condition that makes it so her experiences of the world are untrustworthy. She's unreliable because she's really human and she does things and she doesn't understand why. And I think that's profoundly interesting to me. Like those cases where you look back and you think, wow, why did I do that? And trying to unravel that for the reader. Excellent. And it's phenomenal, I have to say. I already said it once, but it's so good. And I just have to say your characters are just, you're, they're so well done. And Lee is just one of those characters that she's like kind of hard to get a read on at first, but you're rooting for her. You know, you really want her to succeed and everything that she's doing. But I love her interactions with her daughter, especially. I just oh, feel like you. they have such a special bond. And it's just, it's so really, I don't know, you just really get that across. You can tell you're a mother, you know? <laughs> Thank you. I think it I think it helped with her hard edges, right? Because as with most people, she has different selves that she shows the world. So she has a self that she has, is as a detective and then a self that she is as a wife and a self that she is as a mother. And I think when you see the softer sides of her, you can sort of understand why she puts up such walls. You know, I think she's just like a really deeply emotional person and it's only by closing herself off um that she's able to you know to face some pretty hard things yeah so thank you yeah absolutely um so just the nicest couple is it's about two different couples actually there's um lily and christian and then nina and jake and lily and christian are just like the perfect couple they're happily married they're very much in love they've just recently bought the home of their dreams um lily is pregnant they've they had a number of miscarriages before this one so she's she's has a viable pregnancy they're finally going to have a child and they're just so excited for their future um nina and jake on the other hand it's kind of the opposite they have this marriage that's really struggling jake works as a neurosurgeon so he has you know this incredibly stressful job really long hours um he's always at work but even when he's home Home. It's like his, his mind is still at work. Um, so that creates some conflict in their marriage. And then Nina, too, her mother is getting older. She's starting to have some health issues, um, one of which is that she's losing her vision. So she require, she re relies on Nina more and more all the time for help. And so Nina's always rushing off to help her, and then Jake feels resentful. So there's just a lot of animosity building there. And then one night, Jake doesn't come home from work. And Nina's just sure, you know, they had a huge blow up the night before and she thinks he's gone somewhere sleeping on a friend's sofa or something and that's why he's not home and then you know one night turns into two nights and some things start to happen that make her think you know something has actually happened to him 
on the on the other side of things, um, Lily, the other woman, knows that she was the last one to see him before he went missing. And so she tells her husband, Christian, what happens. And the two of them decide that they'll do anything to keep the truth from coming out. So it's like a cat and mouse game. You have this one woman who's just desperate to find her missing husband. And then this couple that, you know, was, will do anything to stop that from happening. And it's really the kind of book, you know, that makes you ask yourself, like, how far would you go to protect someone you love? And would you hurt a friend to, to save yourself? So is there a presumption in this that um, the narrators, the, you know, point of view characters are basically good people, um, but caught up in difficult circumstances? Or if this were a Patricia Highsmith novel, for example, <laughs> we were talking about Mr. Ripley, the presumption there is that you know, he's really, you know, he's really not a good person. Um, and so, you know, what do you, what do you think the reader assumption is when they first meet Lee? Do you think that they're going to assume all the way through the book that she is a good person with both bad luck and bad judgment or what? That's an excellent question. I think they're going to be a little unsettled, like feeling as though you don't know how to judge this person. And that creates, I think, a sense of tension because you want to be able to to decide or wh which category this person goes in. Um, and hopefully through the book, you know, you you pick a side. But at the end of the day, too, it's like part of the, the interesting thing about this genre is the ambiguity. And it's like there's so much ambiguity between the villains and the heroes that by the end, it's like what distinguishes them is this, you know, an act that they've either done or not done or a side that they've chosen. And until they choose that final act, you sort of don't know, I think. I mean, would you say the same is true about your characters? Yeah, I would. And and with you, I was thinking about Lee, you know, there are so many, she makes some choices that you don't agree with, or they're just, you know, she makes some, I don't know. So you're just, as a reader, I think you're constantly on edge. You know, you don't know if you should trust her or not, but you also just don't know what she's going to do because she's a little unpredictable at times. Um, I would say that about my characters. Like, I think that... Um, it's, it's actually like Christian, the character, I feel like is very much like Lee in that you you think he's a good person, but then he starts to make some questionable choices and you don't know how far he's going to take it. So that's more where the question lies. It's not, is he good or is he bad, but how far is he willing to go? Yeah, and I think it's about the actions that they take, right, to decide whether they're good or they're bad. It's not necessarily about their intentions. And then it's like, like, especially for Christian, I was like, what actions will he take or what actions are like a bridge too far? And that kept a lot of tension for me and I, as I was reading and I just kept turning the pages. <laughs> Thank you. That's an interesting question for you as readers. You know, how much are you going to trust the audience? I mean, the author, um, you know, are they are they lying to you all the way through? Would we do that? Uh, I mean, no, but I, I think I was trying to remember what what's Harlan's book that, you know, the, the one where he broke out. We were sitting in a coffee shop together over in Scottsdale when the movie deal came through and he kept talking to his agent saying how much and then he'd hang up and then call that how much. He would hang up. But um, it was one in which do you remember the wife? disappeared I think it was but then suddenly the husband after he got thought that he saw her or somebody reported that they had seen her and so you don't know who's lying to anybody and but one of the questions I had then was you know how much do I trust Harlan you know <laughs> what is he actually doing to me in 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 this book and I I think that's a really good you know good point for readers in reading this sort of book you know do you all ask yourselves that when you plunge into one of these I want to know what's going on in their mind. Just sort of like, are they normal? <laughs> you know, 
Well, if they're normal, you probably wouldn't even be reading the book. So I think, I think you should assume they're. I mean, I'm just astounded at what I'm reading. I mean, I can't even believe that this. And yet, when you read the news every day, <laughs> it's almost the same. Oh, well, now, yes. <laughs> but not, you know, but these plots are so intricate and intriguing and just keeps you focused for so long and I'm an audio person and so the reader of these audio books really for me I can visually see everything in front of me it's like for me going to a Broadway play those narrators they make such a difference I'm a huge audiobook listener myself and I mean they can sometimes you know as a, as a listener sometimes you don't connect with a certain narrator you know and that really is no reflection on the book I feel like it's but um the ones that I don't know that are like so just compelling I it's like you're just seeing the whole thing you know perform right before your eyes We've actually had audio readers here as part of the events, you know, which is, yeah, it's, it's Steve Barry brought his audio guy, and I'm, I'll try to do that again because it's a really interesting part of. Yeah. You know, Barbara um, Rosenblatt, I don't know if she's still, yeah. doing, but she was like the first. She's very good, wasn't that she? That got me into audio. My husband listened to all the J.K. Rowling's because he was so in love with the audiobook narrator <laughs> who, you know, who he said could do, you know, all of the voices, all of the characters without ever, and that is a remarkable thing. And that's another interesting thing about stories. You know, if you're an audiobook reader, do you experience the book differently by listening to it than you do by reading it? You you should answer that, Mary, for you, because you obviously listen to them. Yeah, well, so I don't, so I can't listen to my own, because right. once they're once they're done, and I can't make any changes to the book, I can't read it, I can't, I mean, I've had to before, like, I've done a book club, and it's been, like, three years after I wrote the book, and I can't remember all the details, you know, and I know that that we're going to go into detail in this in this book club discussion so then sometimes they have to but it's hard because I mean you always as a writer you know you always want to go back and change something and even if it's not like a big thing like it's not the big plot twist or anything but there's something you inevitably know, want to change so I've listened to like bits and pieces of my own audiobooks but never the whole thing um but I mean it's just I don't know it's just such an amazing experience when I listen to somebody else's audiobook versus reading I just, I don't know, you know, I, for the longest time, I didn't think I could do audiobooks. I just didn't think I had the attention span for it. And I started with podcasts first. I had a long drive and someone convinced me to listen to a podcast and I was hooked, you know, like when I got to my destination, I did not want to get out of the car. <laughs> And so then I, you know, quickly moved on to audiobooks. And you come to find that you have like your favorite narrators uh -huh. and you will listen to anything that they do. I, uh, I got to choose my narrator for this, which was so exciting. Um, I also listened to all the Harry Potters on okay. audio. 20 seconds. She has started, and I'm really proud of her for doing this. She has started an imprint of her very own, and she's doing it with a small publisher. You know, there are five major publishers. There were almost four, but luckily that didn't work out. Um, and I, I wanted to support that, but I, I can't even describe the author, well, the author is lovely, the book. I'm gonna let Gillian do it because I've read it and I am at a loss to describe to you what the book is like. Um, but it has anyway, a great cover. Uh, I love does, the cover. It does have a great cover, right. It's about, it's about a punk nun who goes, <laughs> who goes bad in New Orleans. And it's a different reading experience, I will guarantee. But anyway, 
Gillian said, I'd like you to do something really nice for my author. And I said, well, let's be real. If you want me to do that, you need to show up with her. You know? <laughs> That's how we'll do something nice for your author is that it's you amazing. will come. And so she's going to do that. So I think, I think it'll be interesting. But she is definitely breaking new ground. But I want to support the idea that somebody is trying to diversify voices and diversify publishing. And it's not all just, you know, one monolithic thing. But let's go back to um, to your stories. And Jennifer, since this is your first published novel, is this the first book you've written? I mean, because no. of the difference. <laughs> There's a real difference. Uh, yeah, I like to, so people like to ask me what my publishing journey has been like. And depending on who asks me, I tell a different story. <laughs> She's unreliable right there. We've got her. <laughs> well, it's the idea that all of these stories are true, right? It's just, you know, it's hard to tell all of the stories in the same time. So one version of the story is the fairy tale version. And that's where, you know, it, there was a pandemic. I had some time. I was writing a book. I gave it to a friend of mine who's an agent, um, a friend who I trusted could be very honest with me because She's been very honest with me in the past. <laughs> and I gave her a copy of this book and I said, listen, I just wrote this. Can you tell me if this is any good? I don't want you to represent me. I just want you to give me your honest opinion. And she, you know, called me back a day later and she said, I'm just read your book and I love this. I have to represent it. And I said, no, 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 we're friends. We can't do this. And then I said that for three hours. And by, you know, hour three, she wore me down and I said, okay, fine. But if this ruins our friendship, it's on you. And, you know, then within a matter of weeks, there was a book deal. That's the one version, the fairy tale version. I think the other, probably more realistic version, is that I was living in California. I was in grad school and I was completely miserable. And uh, to deal with my misery, I started writing and I went to a writer's conference where, um, you know, I read something out loud and someone someone collected me afterwards and said, I loved what you wrote. Would you ghostwrite my book? And I started ghostwriting. And then from there, I entered publishing. And I've been doing that for 10 years. I've been working with authors for 10 years, figuring out how to tell a story. And it took that long for my skills to catch up with my tastes until finally I could write something that I felt was good enough. That's a wonderful story. By the way, let me recommend to you the New York Times Book Review on Sunday has an old, a whole essay on ghostwriting prompted by the publication of Spare, because any of you who thought that perhaps Prince Harry actually wrote it um, <laughs> made a mistake. Um, what, but <laughs> ghostwriting, especially for memoirs, is actually a very good thing, because you take somebody whose life is um, enough people are interested in, you know, in reading about it, but that person doesn't necessarily know how to structure a story. And so it's an interesting combination. The gentleman that ghost wrote that wrote Andre Agassi's uh, autobiography memoir. And he's a ghost writer who doesn't want to be acknowledged. You know, he wants to be the invisible ghost writer. But he's, it's an amazing article. I read it online today because I get a preview of the book review. But I really urge you to, um, to take a look at it because, you know, again, it's a form of storytelling. Memoirs are, after all, a form of storytelling. You're, you know, telling the story of your own life. Um, and, and there's, um, you know, how much of that is editing? How much of that is reliable? How much of it is the ghostwriter mm -hmm. severing out the unreliable narration from the reliable narration? You know, fascinating stuff that's going on. 
around us. Mary, how about you? How many tries did you have, if any, before you published your first yeah. book? So it was, I don't have any fail, fairy tale version. It was all, <laughs> it was all, it was, it was hard, you know, and, um, I, so I, I said before, you know, I just, I love to write since I was young, but I never, I never thought I was going to be an author. Like I didn't, the idea of writing something and putting it out there for people to read was just beyond me. Um, but I wrote all the time, you know, I just, I just loved it. I loved writing. I worked as a high school history teacher. Um, and you know, when I would come home in the afternoon and I would write whatever manuscript I had going on at the time, but it was, uh, back in 2005, my daughter was born and I stepped away from teaching what I thought was temporarily at the time so that I could start my family. And it was then that I started working on the good girl. And, you know, when I first started it, it was just like, like anything that I'd written in like the 20 years before that I didn't, I didn't know if I'd finish it. I didn't, you know, plan to do anything with it. But then something clicked, you know, I, I was talking before how I kind of, you know, put those mystery elements in and just I fell in love with this book in a way that I had never loved anything I had written before. And so, um, you know, at some point I was just like determined to finish this book no matter what. And it took me five years. I didn't tell anybody that I was working on it um, or totally in secrecy. My husband knew I was working on it, but I wouldn't let him read it. And I only told him because we had one computer at the time. And so he would either find it or some like really sketchy internet searches. So. <laughs> um, and then I finished it, you know, and I, I thought, okay, well, I want to put it out there, you know, so again, I didn't let anybody that I actually knew in my real life read it. I didn't tell anybody it existed. And um, I got the writer's market. It lists all these literary agents. And I just started querying agents. And I sent, I sent it out to like 100 agents. And there were some, usually like you send a query letter, you might send some pages. If they're interested, they might ask for more pages. Ultimately, there were three agents that wanted to read it all, but every single one of them passed. So everybody turns the good girl down. And, you know, I thought, well, that was that, you know, it's not going to be published. And I was I was definitely disappointed, but I think it was also the outcome I was expecting. Um, so time moved on. I, I kept writing. I don't remember what I was writing at the time because it was just nothing that moved me like the good girl had. And two years, like after that final rejection, um, one of these agents that had previously rejected it reached back out to me. And it just so happens that the first time she read it, she was brand new to this agency right out of college. And she was going through the slush pile, which is all these unsolicited manuscripts that they receive. She read The Good Girl. She loved it. She, she told me how she woke her husband up in the middle of the night to tell him how much she loved it. <laughs> But she was working as an assistant for somebody else, and that somebody else decided to pass on it. So she just she didn't have it, you know, the authority to take it on herself. And so she passed. And in retrospect, it was like the only um, um, letter that I got that had any, you know, sort of like advice and everything else was just like a flat out rejection. But it was the only one that kind of offered some feedback. Well, so two years later, she was promoted to an agent and she remembered the good girl for all that time. And she reached back out to me to see if it was still available. And um, so I guess it was in a way it was a fairy tale then. <laughs> Yeah, so it was, I, I always tell people, you know, I know that there are always aspiring authors out there, and I always say that, I mean, for one, timing is a big issue, you know, because yeah. two years before that, it wasn't the right time, and two years later, it was, but you really just, you have to find that one person that's as passionate, you know, about your work as you are. We had an author last night who spent 22 years writing the book that published, and it wasn't that it got rejected. It took him 22 years, A, to age himself to the point where he could figure out mm -hmm. the narrator, and B, for the story to publish when it would be received well. 
So he tried to publish it when he first wrote it at that particular time. Mm -hmm. It wouldn't have worked at all. Mm -hmm. So sometimes, you know, you're right, sometimes patience and, and delay. So since you guys are writing books that depend in part upon, you know, unexpected plot developments <laughs> and twists and so forth, Mary, when you, when you start, how, how much do you know where you're going and how much of it just happened? This is not really the pantser question, but it's kind of the, the pantser question. I'm a total pantser. <laughs> I, have, I have no idea where it's going. I mean, there was maybe one book of mine that I wrote, I think with the other misses, I knew where I was going with that one. But um, everything else, I just, I go in blinds. You know, I, I have my like opening scenario, you know, and in, in this case, it's a man is missing and a woman, you know, has, she was the last one to see him. And that was kind of all that I had. I didn't know exactly who my characters were going to be. I knew nothing about their backstory. I knew nothing about what my twist was going to be. I think, um, you know, I know that there are a lot of authors that love to, to plot it all out. They want it. And there would definitely be some comfort in there because I, I have moments of panic where I think, you know, this is never going to all come together. <laughs> um, but I think it makes it all the more rewarding when it finally does, like when I think of that twist. But I just, I feel like I really need to get to know my characters and I need to know kind of the scenario before I can can think of how it's going to all resolve. So maybe I asked the wrong question. Do you know at least one character when you start? <laughs> um, so when I, I always write from, from multiple points of view. So in this case, we hear from Christian, the one husband, and then Nina, whose husband is missing. And um, so I, I love writing that way just because, I don't know, I think that it adds something. It adds more mystery to it, in my opinion, to like come at it from different angles because you don't know who to believe. They're not all telling the same story. Um, so, so one of the first questions I always ask myself when I come up with an idea is who is going to tell this story um, like who is closest to it but can tell a story without revealing too much to the reader so I started with Christian first and he was the one that was just I knew we had to hear from him he was kind of speaking the the loudest to me but I don't actually write my books in the same way that you read them. So I don't go like chapter one, chapter two. So I took um, Christian's story and I wrote, for the most part, it in its entirety from beginning to end. And so if you've read my books before, I do this with all of them. I always just grab one narrator and I write it from beginning to end. And then I will pick up a different narrator and, you know, go back and write his or her story and then start to weave it together. With this book, it was a little trickier just because they're literally like the timelines all connected. Somebody's actions really mirror somebody else's actions. So I did have to step away from that a little bit in, in points. But I don't know. I feel like I can really get to know my characters that much more when I'm just focused on the one. Um, and sometimes like my plots are not linear time wise either. So that way I don't lose myself in what's going on. Over to you. This is all very impressive. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Scary, isn't it? I know. She's really good. Yep. She is really good. That's why she's a bestseller. <laughs> Uh, yeah. Wow. Okay. That was intimidating. Uh, I write from the beginning to the end. <laughs> One character, one character, uh, but I'm very impressed by all of this. And I think, you know, the thing that I struggle with the most is that I want to be a pantser or a plotter so badly. I really would love to be a plotter. I'll work out an entire plot and I'll start writing and I'll say, no, that doesn't feel right. And that's the really frustrating part. But by working out the whole plot, I've I've created a scenario where I know the characters a little better. And so I try it again and I start the book again and and I, you know, fall flat on my face. And how do I know when I fall flat on my face? I have a really low attention span. <laughs> so when I start to get bored, I'm like, oh, wow, this is, if I'm not, 
you know, if I'm not getting up at 5 a.m. every day because I have to keep working on this book, then how do I expect anybody who, you know, is reading after a 10-hour shift or is reading, you know, after the kids go to bed and they're exhausted or, you know, is reading on free moments, how do I expect them to, to keep their attention? So um, I just keep, you know, starting. And then when I, when my attention falls off, I go back and I delete everything from the point where I lost my attention span and I try again and it's just, it takes forever. <laughs> but, you know, hopefully at the end of the day, one of the things it does is it gets out all the obvious plots because the obvious plot is the one that comes to me first. And the second one is that it maintains the emotional resonance of the book. It's like, you know, I look at books that I love um, and I, sometimes I can't even tell you what happened in the book. Which is, which is kind of shocking. Um, but it's because it's, it's the emotional connection that I feel to what's happening. And so it's like, I have to maintain that thread or I've lost my reader. So is it, is it implicit in all this, Mary, that you don't write a series, that every book is in fact going to be a new world? I mean, I, I think so. I can't, I can't say 100%, but I mean, I've pretty much ruined all my characters' lives by the end of the book. <laughs> I don't know that there's really, I have to like let them go, you know, I have to let them try and piece their worlds back together. But I don't know, a lot of people will ask, you know, will there be a sequel to such and such a book? And um, no, I'm really like done with them at the end, you know, and sometimes there is there are things that are unresolved, which I know that readers don't always love. But as a, as a writer, sometimes I do love that. Um, I don't know, because I just I like you to to think and guess, you know, what happens next or, you know, what, what, um, what, where the, the character's life is going to take them. But um, every time I think, you know, that I want to try, you know, my hand at a series, um, I don't know, there's something about that just blank manuscript that calls to me, just starting totally fresh. Well, I mean, but there's another advantage to it. If you, the reader, know that Mary is going to be done at the end of the book, then nobody in the book is safe. Absolutely anybody. No, I'm serious. In a series, you know that Jack Reacher is going to get on a bus and leave town every time, right? It's just that's the way that series is structured. Uh, or Harry Bosch is, you know, he's, well, he's actually had myriad versions of his professional life, but nonetheless, he's not going to die until Michael's done with him and, you know, and, and we'll know. But I think in a, you know, the kind of books you're writing, everyone is at risk, which really heightens the emotional um, temperature of the reader. Would you feel the same way or are you looking towards repeatingly or what's your game here? Yeah, um, I, I, Lee is gonna get another book. Um, so that's exciting. <laughs> I think okay, I'm not so supposed spoiler, to say that. We know she went through this. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and so I think that's really exciting for me because I think about, you know, this person who she started the book with this really big mistake. By the end of it, she's figured out sort of the why of, of why she did it. And so when I went to write whatever book I was going to write next, I tried to write more characters. Like, I'm so envious of your imagination that you can keep coming up with these brilliant characters. Um, for me, I just kept coming back to Lee, and I, I, I felt like I wasn't finished with her story yet. The, the first book is an absolute standalone, but, um, but there's more coming for her. 
Well, and I think Lee being a detective, you know, there are so much that you could do with her. You know, you can build so many cases that she's working on and just keep going. And I'm really excited that you said that there's going to be more Lee because there are there are things at the ends that I want to know what happens. Uh-huh. And, and you said, too, that you like to leave a few, you know, threads untied by the end. And I love that as a reader because I want to close the book still thinking about the characters and still having it, you know, I feel like if you tie up all the loose ends, then they they stop their lives. They don't continue anymore. But if you don't, they, they stay with you. And I think that's the beautiful thing about reading is that, you know, it can transport you to a different reality. And so anytime I want, I can be transported <laughs> to, to your character's story I and think, that. what are they doing now? <laughs> what are they doing? How are they screwing everything up? <laughs> Again, <laughs> even more. Right. So do you in the audience have questions that you'd like to ask the authors? Stick up your hand. Don't be scared. Oh, I hate this. This is like teaching where there's a deadly silence. <laughs> do you stay away from reading? Like, are you influenced by what you're reading at all? Or do you read a different genre than what you're writing? Or do you even have time to read for pleasure? <laughs> Yeah, I so I I do read and this is my favorite genre to read. So but it's it's hard and it's not hard necessarily in that I worry that, um, you know, I'm going to get ideas from other people's books or I do sometimes worry like if I'm working on something and I'm excited about the twist, I worry that like the next book I read is going to have, you know, the same twist and. Um, but I think that I, I, I worry about it as like when I read some book that is so phenomenal, then I start to psych myself out and think I can, I can't, I can't write that well. Um, so that's, that's one of the reasons, but I read a lot. Um, I read, I get a lot of like blurb requests, you know, like months before books come out, which is always super fun to get an early look at it. Um, but there are times when like, if the writing perhaps isn't going so well, then I will shy away from the genre. Historical fiction is my second favorite to read. So then I'll, I'll jump over there and read some of that. How about you? Oh, yes. Uh, I feel the same way. I, I read all the time. Uh, and I love reading crime fiction. I also really love nonfiction. So I work for my day job as a literary agent, and I work exclusively with nonfiction, in part because the fiction stuff feels like my fun world, and I don't want to necessarily mix like fun and work. Um, but I think the interesting thing about that is I'm my brain is so hungry for facts for um, ways of seeing the world, for perspectives that I don't know about or, or secret histories even. And so I'm always trying to find, you know, little pieces that I can infuse in the book so that when you read, you get that feeling like, ah, I've learned something. If I go to a dinner party or something, I can talk about, you know, in this case, like the Indian mounds in Ohio. And isn't that interesting? Anybody else? Yeah. I guess, Mary, this for you. As a writer, you know that you have major plot twists in every one of your books. Do you, knowing as a writer, wait for somebody to read it so you can be like waiting for their like? <laughs> it's so it's sometimes hard, you know, like when I figure it out, it's hard to know is this going to surprise the reader? You know, because once once I know it, then it's like, are the clues too heavy? I don't. It's really, really hard to judge it. And um, so, so my editor, my agent, and my husband are usually like my first readers. So I won't I won't tell them anything. So they go into it not knowing, and that's really like my first um, you know sense of like 
was it a good surprise or you know i don't know but i do i mean there's it's you know like this is my this is my eighth book now and there's I don't know, the thrill of like getting it out there and seeing readers reaction. And it's just, you know, now that the book is out there and readers are, you know, saying stuff on social media, like, I'd love to hear, you know, somebody was surprised and they totally didn't see the ending coming and things like that. It's because that's what you hope, you know, but you, you never know as a writer, you never know if this is going to be one that really gets them or not. So, um, but it's always a thrill when, when it does catch a reader off guard. <laughs> Um, I have a book club back at home. I'm from Pennsylvania, and we actually have our next one on Sunday. We did Local Woman Missing. So this is the first book I read of yours. And I came here for vacation and saw you here. And was like, <laughs> so anyway, one of the questions that always comes up in our book club is, do you picture the characters? Because I don't picture people. Like, when you're writing them, do you see them that's okay that's a really good question because i know you've probably gotten the question too is like who would you cast yeah. for this and i have no idea i never know because i don't you know sometimes i will describe characters like you know someone has brown hair or red hair but i do not ever form a full picture of that person in my head so it's really hard for me to think of you know like what hollywood star would play them so no i don't i mean i feel them you know like i feel how they act and who they they are as a person but as for a visual I never fully fully get it yeah and I think I only get visuals with the side characters the main characters I don't but I feel like sometimes the side characters have to you have to be able to keep track of the side characters like the reader does and then in your own head and so sometimes I like to play with tropes like what what trope would each character be and so I have you know images that I associate with certain tropes um, and again that's just like to help the reader keep track of who's who and who you know help me as well but the main characters i have no idea what they look like hmm. i'm glad you said that because i thought that i was like the outlier there <laughs> no not at all because i feel like you want them to be sort of fluid right like you want them to feel like they could be anybody because if they look like you or they look like you know your your mother or your friend or something then you've limited what they're able to do that's why you don't actually see portraits on book jackets very often because, uh, you know, you want to leave it open for you. You ask one, let's, let's get this man back in the bag. We'll come back to you. When you guys were starting the novels, like, did you, like, have, do it in your free time, or did you have, like, a set time to do it, or just whenever you, because life happens, so, like, did you have, like, a set time, like, you'd get up in the morning and start writing, or just when you had, like, a moment in the day to do it? Uh, for me, I, my brain shuts off after 7 PM. Like it's a miracle that I'm speaking in full sentences right now. <laughs> uh, thank you, coffee. So I have to write, you know, in the morning or it's not going to get done. And so a lot of what I did was, um, wake up and the first thing I would do at whatever was going on, the first thing I would do at my day was start writing and getting even just a few sentences in. Even if it was a few sentences, it kept me in the story. But, you know, I have, you know, little kids and they wake up when they want to wake up, um, which is not always when I want them to wake up. So it, it would, you know, it would happen at a different time every day, but it always happened in the morning. And then I would use the evening sort of after everybody was asleep to do research to say, what were some of the big questions that I had and what can I read to learn more about these topics that I'm really interested in exploring. 
Yeah, I'm I'm similar. My kids were really young. They're teenagers now, but they were really young when I got started writing. And so it was totally out of necessity. I started getting up at five and I would write from five to seven every day because then the kids were up and I just really didn't have time to get back to it. So I would I would write from five to seven. And now, like I said, they're you know, they're in school or activity most of the day, but I'm still up at five every day because for me, I just found that that's the time that I'm the most productive. I, you know, I, I get out of bed, make some coffee and I get going. And my mind is just the most fresh at that time of day. It varies so much from person to person. You know, I've, I've met many authors that like cannot function at that time of day and do their best work after 10 PM. Um, so it's, it's so different for everybody, but yeah. That's... Do you ever find that you go to sleep with like a problem on your mind? And then when you wake up and you sit down at your computer, the, the problem is solved. <laughs> I do. I, that's I. Those. It. It doesn't happen as much as I would like it to. Same. But when it does, it's like. It's really magical, I have to say, because there are times where I just have this plot issue that's just, it's not working and I can't, I can't see any way through it. And then I will either dream about it or, you know, something will come to me in the middle of the night and it's like the perfect answer. And you always, if you ever get an idea at like 2 a.m., you have to write it down. Absolutely. Do absolutely. not tell yourself you'll remember. You will not. <laughs> <laughs> no, sometimes your notes won't make any sense, but you have to write it down. But I feel the same way that like your subconscious is working when you're asleep to just make connections and to like fill in details and like connect the dots. And sometimes if I go to bed with a problem, when I wake up, it's just magically solved. Yeah. Which someone pointed out because we are both early writers. Someone pointed out that um, it might still be that subconscious at play, that there's sort of a dreamy quality to it because we are not like fully, fully awake and going about our days yet. That's absolutely true. I like to exercise very early in the morning before I know that I'm exercising as well. (laughs) If I'm too conscious of it, then I hate it. <laughs> Excellent point. You, do you have another question? Yeah, I only asked because you guys said that you don't picture main characters. But I saw that uh, the other missus is being turned into a Netflix series. So did you have say in the casting yeah there. so okay bad news is that that has fallen through unfortunately so the way it works with like things getting options these production companies will get it they usually option it for 18 months and then they can renew it for another 18 months which they did so netflix had it for a full three years um and they they wrote the screenplay i read the screenplay it was really good they actually like with with like minor changes they stuck true to the plot so i was i was really really excited but then COVID happens and you know a lot of times these production companies take on more than they actually make so the rights came back to me so hopefully i have a wonderful film agent and hopefully we will sell that one to somebody else i will say local woman missing though was options for tv by black bear pictures and that too it's that's like moving forward still fingers crossed that one does you know happen but they also have a screenplay i have not read it yet but they're i think that they're very close to casting um the role of kate's which i'm excited about so i think that you know that's kind of like the next big hurdle once they get some attached to it then they can really try and get a network to pick it up anyone else yes tag along on that how does that work so they write your screenplay and they make a bunch of changes do you have a say in that that no that's mm-hmm. not how the book goes yeah it doesn't make any say <laughs> what she no. said <laughs> no 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 they don't it, and nor in the casting as a rule although mm-hmm. sometimes the author is asked to audition authors or something but mm-hmm. when you sell it you've sold it yeah normally you sign a non-disparagement clause which means you can never say anything negative about how it how much you hated whoever played <laughs> that yeah. My very my very favorite instance of that was Michael Conley made a book in which 
Clint, was it Clint Eastwood? Yeah, Clint Eastwood was the star. It's called Bloodwork, I think. And Michael, sorry, Michael, I'm telling you. <laughs> Michael was not entirely thrilled with the casting, mostly because it was the character was too old. He thought Eastwood was too old for the character. And so once they own it, they own the character as well as it all. So Michael just killed it in the next book. <laughs> And then if they went on, if they went on, it wouldn't be his character. Now, a different example of that is Anne Cleves, the Shetland series, which I recommend to you, which is wonderful. And she stopped writing it. She said to me, I've said all I have to say about Jimmy Paris. And they went on for two more seasons, but it was no longer based on her books. They had the right to do that. So, um, Elmer Leonard said it best. He said, you know, you buy a car and you own it and you drive it, and then when you sell it, that's it. And that's basically what happens with a book. When you sell it, you know, you don't get to drive it anymore. It's not yours. So it goes. One more question. Yes, ma'am. Um, biggest question for both of you guys. So I really only read and watch movies and series of, like, this, you know, thriller type. And if something can surprise me, I'm impressed. Mm -hmm. Like, if I don't predict it in the beginning, I'm, like, you know, impressed. So... Local, local women thing, floored. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I've read all of your books, and I'm very impressed with all of them, but that one was really surprising. <laughs> My question for both for both of you guys, I guess, do you ever feel or, like fear you're going to run out of like ideas, or like even consider writing like a different genre because you're like, oh crap, I, like, I'm telling you, every book that I've read, I'm like, how is she? Oh, I do, I do. I think about it every time, you know, and, and it's not just like my own work, but there are so many incredible writers in this genre that are coming up with phenomenal twists. So it's like they're getting taken. <laughs> um, you know, and so I know that. So I think that every time I start a book, you know, I think there has to be more to it than just the big twist. I think that that's sort of what I've started to figure out. So like with Local Woman Missing, you know, I thought, okay, well, somebody might guess the twist, but what if there's like a lot of surprises <laughs> because you're never going to guess them all right so then there at least will be something that really catches somebody off guard so that's kind of the way that i've started to approach it thank you thank you <laughs> wow well that's a really nice way to end up so what we're going to do now is we have to Thank you all for coming this evening. We have two books that we're going to give away, which Mary has in her custody. Okay. All right. Um, and you should have a question if you bought, I'm sorry, <laughs> try it again, a number. If you bought a book, there should be a number in it. John, is anybody up there who can tell me how many numbers there are? You can tell me. I love John. John has been a volunteer at the Poison Pen for 25 years, I think. Okay, so Mary, what I'd like you to do, The Cloisters is on the top. The Cloisters has been a bestseller for quite a while. It's a really fascinating book. If you would pick a number between 1 and 22, if that person is here, we're going to give them a copy. This is an advanced reading copy. It's not an actual book, but this is the early version that I get or that Mary gets if she's going to blurb a book. And there may have been changes in it that the author subsequently makes or something, so it's not identical to the printed book all the time. Yeah. <laughs> a 14. Do we? Oh. oh. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't see it. This is actually my yeah. <laughs> You're welcome. Some, some, I didn't see. All right. So Jennifer gets to do the other one. Now,
this is an older book, and I don't know if any of you have ever read Donna Leon, who is a bestseller. She writes about Venice, mm. and she has, it's a wonderful Italian mystery series. It is, I would say, they're existential questions. They're certainly huge cultural questions um, about all kinds of issues about living in Italy. She's an American expat that has lived in Venice for many, many years. And she's written, I'm trying to think, I'm going to debut her book on Zoom on March 14th, again. Um, I'm saying maybe 28 by now, maybe even 30. Uh, Commissario Guido Brunetti is her character. And there was a TV series of it. <laughs> But horribly, it was made by a German company, and I'm here to tell you that an Italian commissario played oh. by a guy from Bavaria just oh. does not work. <laughs> but it's a wonderful series. Anyway, this is called Give Unto Others, so you get to pick a number between 122 that is not 14. And luckily, I don't have any cousins here. <laughs> I'm going to choose number three. Oh, look, wonderful. I'm here for my mother. She <laughs> She's a big fan of yours. <laughs> you can give it to mom along with Mary's book then. How wonderful. I was admiring him staying put through this whole <laughs> So I'm glad you got to. Anyway, thank you all very much for coming. What we'd like you to do, first let's thank our authors. Yay. Hello. We hope you're enjoying our programs and podcasts with authors. We'd like to expand them, and your help would be appreciated. Please make a donation at poisonedpenfoundation.org. 100% of the proceeds will go to help connect authors with readers in this difficult time. Thank you.